The Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 5, starting with verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you? (laughs) His disciples answered, and yet you ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with the people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up, began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat the gospel of the Lord. You could be seated. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you all this morning. Um, So glad to worship together and to see all of your faces. Oops. Um, Hope you're doing well. This gospel passage today, I want to reflect on a little bit. And uh, Um, One of the fascinating things, there's a bunch of fascinating things in this story, but but one of the really interesting things on the surface of this story is the literary technique that Mark is using here. He's doing something kind of interesting. Mark tends to do this thing where he tells a story and then he sandwiches another story inside of that first story. It's called a Markin sandwich. Mmm, sounds good, right? And and Mark kind of tends to tell stories the way my wife Ashley tells stories, Okay. So here's what I mean by that. When I tell a story that I'm excited about, or I want somebody to hear, or I want them to share the emotion of this story, you guys probably experienced this. Um, I wanna tell the story like 
all the way from point A to point B. I want to tell the exciting parts. I want to emphasize those and then get to the end of the story. One example of this is Ashley and I like to tell the story of our honeymoon and some of the events that happened on our honeymoon. And we went to Mexico and I won't tell this whole story today, but uh, when we were in Mexico, uh, the house that we were in, this beautiful house that some friends had let us uh, rent while we were there, um, was broken into and all of our stuff was stolen on our honeymoon, like our computer and our digital camera and all these kind of things. And the story continues and it ends up with us calling police who come in with (laughs) AK-47s into our place, trying to search everything and look for this. Come to find out the thieves are well-known local thieves who everybody knows who steals stuff in that little town. And so they all knew who it was. And so then we go to a courthouse trying to beg them to actually take a police report so they can look for the stuff. And then ultimately it ends up with us in a village stakeout around these people's homes, waiting for them to come out so that the police can arrest them. And the police telling me, stand in the backyard, and if they run in the backyard, just tackle them and take them down. (laughs) So that's my story. So Ashley, when she tells this story, or we tell it together, I start telling the story, and I want to talk about the the courthouse, and I want to talk about the AK-47s, and I want to talk about this ultimate thing that happens where I'm told that I'm supposed to tackle the guy. And she stops, and she goes, and you know, there's all these little restaurants down in that town, and they're so great, and they were so cool, because there were like three or four of these restaurants, and we'd go to these restaurants at different times, and I go, Ashley, that's not the story. Like, it's true, it's part of it, but that's a story inside of a story. That's not the story itself. Mark kind of does this. So I'm not making fun of my wife today. She is a lot like the gospel writer, okay? He, he tells a story where he, he starts telling some events and then all of a sudden he goes, oh yeah, and this thing happened. And he tells another story inside of it. But for Mark, and I think for Ashley too, those two stories connect with each other in a powerful way. They mean something to each other. They illuminate something in the story. That's what we call this Mark and sandwich. So in this passage, Mark starts out by telling a story of Jairus's daughter, And Jairus is this synagogue leader who comes to Jesus right when he enters this town by crossing the sea, and he falls at his feet, and he pleads Jesus to heal his daughter who's dying. But on the way to Jairus' daughter, there's another story. There's a woman who has this bleeding issue and um, squeezed in the crowd to touch Jesus' garment. But then the first story continues. And Jesus goes to Jairus' house and heals his daughter. So we see that sandwich at play. So a few reflections from these two stories today. Um, A few things I want to say. First of all, uh, we learn something today about the God who heals. I want to talk about that. Why does Jesus heal people? And why doesn't he just heal everybody who's around? Like, why specific people? Surely there were lots of sick people. Why just a few people? And secondly, what do these stories tell us about Jesus? about who he is, about his nature, and who he has come to. Okay. Let's start with this guy, Jairus. So it says he's a synagogue leader, or some translations say a synagogue president. This was a small town, so he's kind of the equivalent of a pastor or a community leader uh, in this city. So think about this. Jesus, who's a preacher, a rabbi, we know he's the son of God. Jesus was also a member of a synagogue. Think about that. So think about being the synagogue leader, not this guy, a different guy, but think about being the synagogue leader who is the head over the the synagogue that Jesus attends. 
<laughs> That'd be kind of rough, wouldn't it? Like that would be kind of hard to figure that out. Jesus is a church member, <laughs> the equivalent of a church member. Um, now, I don't think Jesus was the type that, maybe I'm wrong, but complained about everything in the synagogue. <laughs> you know, I don't think that he stood up and said, ah, your, your sermon was way off today, blah, 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 blah. Maybe he did. Like that'd be helpful if he did, but I don't think he was bitter. I don't think he picked apart anything, but Jesus was a troublemaker in their eyes. He caused trouble with a lot of the experts of the law and the Jewish leaders at that time. So you have to remember that the synagogues at this time and the temples at this time had kind of worked out a deal with the Roman governor to where they could kind of practice what they did. They could practice their everyday life. They could speak the Hebrew language. They could worship in the way that they had worshiped. And Rome would leave them alone as long as they would leave Rome alone as well. So the whole goal of a lot of these synagogue leaders is don't rock the boat too much. Don't shake things up too much. And Jesus begins shaking things up. So these synagogue leaders, I imagine, are trying to keep their distance from Jesus to go, maybe you should go to that church down the road, not this one, right? Um, but this is different. Why is this different? Well, it's because this man is desperate. His daughter is dying. You can imagine what's going on in his mind. Any fear that he had of what Jesus would do to his reputation any pride that he had, that he was the synagogue leader in that town, and so uh, he doesn't really need anything from Jesus. All of that had to be set aside in this moment of desperation. My daughter is dying. He even drops to the ground at Jesus's feet. He literally lays himself down <laughs> and says, I am so desperate, I need your healing. This imagery is striking. And so then, it says Jesus went with him, and Mark kind of leaves that story there. It leaves it hanging, okay? And as Jesus is making his way to her, to Jairus' daughter, I imagine there's a few thoughts going through the head of the crowds. First of all, there's sorrow. We get the sense in this story that when he says his daughter is dying, it's that she is going to die, that this is a trek that he's made and that she is going to die. This is an inevitability, so the crowd is sorrowful. This 12-year-old girl will be dead when they arrive. But there's also another thought. And to understand this thought, we have to understand a little bit of Jewish purity culture. Um, in, in this culture, purity or cleanliness was kind of the goal, to be someone who was pure and clean. And that had to do with righteousness in a lot of people's minds or external acts of cleanliness that were done to kind of show a righteous heart or a righteous attitude to God. It's kind of this taking this phrase, cleanliness is next to godliness, like to another extreme and to another level. So sickness, disease, and death were seen as signs of sin. So if you were broken in your body in some way, if you were sick in your body, it was a sign that you were a sinful person, that that was actually coming out of your, um, of your life. So if you're deformed in some way, you actually couldn't worship in the temple at that time. Um, so not only, and this is so important, not only could you not worship in the temple, it wasn't just you can't come on Sundays and worship or Saturdays you know, when the synagogue met. It, it was also that you were cut off from the community, cut off from the people of God, actually in this culture, cut off from society, that it was a, a status of your relationship with God, but it was also a status of your relationship with the community. So if you were broken in your body, you were outcast, you were separated, you were considered unclean, you had broken the law. And another way that you could make yourself unclean other than being sick was by touching a dead body. 
If you touched a dead body, that was one of the worst things that you could do, and you were considered completely unclean and cut off from the community. So nobody wanted to touch a dead body. Another one of the major ways you could be considered unclean is if you had a bodily discharge, okay? So Jesus is on the way to the home of a girl who the crowd assumes is dead. They're thinking he better not get too close to her. He better not touch her. She's unclean. He better not put his hands on her, really get close. Oh, Jesus, are you sure you want to do this? Because she's going to be dead. And on the way there is a woman, the story of a woman who has chronic bleeding, a discharge, a problem that it says she couldn't get rid of no matter how hard she tried. So we know that this woman was cut off from community. She's cut off from society. People have assumed that she's sinful and she's broken and she's outcast you've got two forms of major impurity going on here that they're thinking, Jesus, don't get close. Don't get close, don't get near this. Both Jairus and the woman are seeking rescue from Jesus. They're seeking deliverance from Jesus. They're both at the end of their rope. Jairus is looking for Jesus to rescue his daughter from the grip of death. A little side note here. Uh, you'll see here the word salvation, like that they talk about being saved in this passage, which often we think of that as a kind of like an inner work in our lives, and it is an inner work. But they're using, throughout the gospels, you see this idea of salvation as being a physical rescue, a physical deliverance, a, feeling, a physical remaking or putting back together. So they're both at the end of their rope. They're both seeking rescue. Jairus is seeking for his daughter to be rescued from the grip of death. This woman is seeking to be rescued not only from her physical symptoms, but from her exile from the temple and the people of God. Both are seeking salvation and deliverance. Both are desperate, both are afraid, and they both risk everything. And the woman in her desperation is convinced she can be healed if she just is near him, if she just touches him. Even his clothes, if she just touches his clothes, she's convinced, she has faith that she can touch him. So her reaching out is a moment of disobeying the Levitical purity codes. It's a moment of resistance. It's a moment of saying that I, I, don't, I don't agree with these codes or I'm desperate, I'm to the point where I am risking it all and I'm gonna break the law and I'm going to touch this guy even though I'm not supposed to. She's very brave. She breaks the law, she is unclean, and she reaches out for her healing, and it tells us she's healed. Jesus is constantly disobeying the purity codes. He's doing that. He's, he's constantly upending these purity codes. In fact, the gospel writers kind of want to rub our noses in it because they're trying to tell us over and over again, you know, all those people that are impure, that are unclean, that you've uh, separated and you've isolated from and you've exiled, Jesus is going to go to them. Now, there's a whole thing about Jesus as the new temple, that the temple was the place of God's healing and restoration. People were cut off. Jesus as the new temple actually goes out into the world, becomes the healing and restoration for the people, becomes this walking temple. Okay, I'm not gonna get into all that, but we see this here. Jesus is constantly disobeying these purity codes. He touches lepers, those who are sick. He speaks to women. Even that was something not to do. And here in two places, he shows he's not interested in the categories of clean and unclean. Um, there's an author named Rachel Held Evans and she says of this event, she says, when God became human, when he wrapped himself in our blood and skin and bones, his first order of business 
was to touch the ones that we would not touch, to fellowship in our sufferings and to declare once and for all that purity is not found in the body, but in the heart. Jesus and the disciples after this have this really funny conversation. When I was reading it, you heard, probably heard me chuckle a little bit and maybe it doesn't strike us as funny at first, but it's really an odd conversation because Jesus says, who touched me? Who touched me? And the disciples are like, we just squeezed through a crowd of hundreds of people in a densely populated area. Like a lot of people touched you. It's kind of like a football player at the bottom of a pile, right? <laughs> After he gets tackled, stepping up and going, which one of you guys touched me? Right? No, that's part of the nature of it. You just squeeze through this. So Jesus is obviously asking a different question. It's a deeper level here, but, um, but there is something kind of comical about the fact that the disciples don't know what's going on. Like there's hundreds of people that touched you. What are you talking about? But Mark wants us to see something about Jesus. This isn't a magic trick that Jesus does. Mark wants us to see that rescue is found in our proximity to Jesus, in our closeness to Jesus. It's not just a magic trick that he does. It's rescue, salvation, restoration, remaking is found in our closeness and in our proximity to the person of Christ who is always going after us even when we're unclean. There is something about this man who is making wrongs right, who is remaking the world that Mark wants us to know about. He wants his audience to know about. Now, we could endlessly speculate, and I've heard so many sermons speculating on how this healing happened. Was it because the woman had great faith? Is it because Jesus had some kind of mystical power in his being that like radiates when he walks around? But I don't think that's the point of what Mark is saying. Mark is telling us rescue is found in the moment when we drop all pretense, when the pressure of life is stretched all around us, we're pressed in on every side, even when we doubt and we can't even muster the faith to say, excuse me, can you heal me? But all we do is reach out. At the end of our rope, when we reach out and risk everything and reach for him. The suspense of our story then heightens when Jairus finds out that his daughter has died. He gets this word. And those of you who have experienced the sting of death of someone close to you, um, you may wonder, how was Jairus even walking after this? When you get this news, I mean, I'm picturing that he's collapsing in grief. How do you even keep walking to the house at this point? And it seems like, like an audacious thing for Jesus to say to him, don't be afraid, just believe. That might be asking him to like swim an entire ocean from one side to the other in that moment because of his grief. In fact, I like to picture, and this is just speculation, but I like to picture that at that moment, the people surrounding Jairus, maybe the people who went with him, maybe the disciples actually had to kind of pick him up and kind of walk with him. That it wasn't just his own faith that he had to trust in, but he had to trust the faith of the community around him as they began to walk together. But somehow because of faith and trust, he keeps going, he keeps walking. As they come near the house, there are these traditional grieving rituals that have already begun. And in the Jewish culture, um, what would happen is someone would play a flute. That was what would happen when someone was mourning. And then a bunch of people would come to the house and mourn loudly and cry loudly. In fact, it was so important at this culture that when someone died, you created an environment of mourning 
that they hired mourners to come in and actually grieve loudly and yell and wail to create that culture. Now, for us, that seems so strange. So much of our culture has been built on societies that are about maintaining a stiff upper lip, fighting our emotions, trying to hold, keep calm and carry on, right? Just try to kind of keep moving forward. But in most cultures, actually, in what we kind of call high context cultures that we see much of the world today, um, emotions are worn much more on the surface, right? That um, grief and mourning and even anger and joy are all expressed on kind of a greater level. And this is one of those cultures where grieving was done loudly. But if you think about it in our culture, even though these are foreign to us, grief over death is not something we can just grin and bear right? Death, in one sense, is normal. And we'd say that. It's normal in the sense of the natural life cycle of things. But in a deeper sense, it's also not normal. Death is normal and death is not normal. What do I mean by that? There's something inside of us that knows that death is a sign of a greater disease in the world that it's a sign of something broken about the world. And so there's something in us when we grieve, we miss that person, obviously, but there's also something in us that goes, that's not right. There's something about this death that is not right, and that causes us to grieve. It's not just sentimentality. We grieve because there's something not right in death itself. It's normal and it's not normal, right? But Jesus then tells the crowd and he insists on something. He insists, insists he says, she is just asleep. And he takes his three closest followers and he charges into this house. Now, this is confusing for us when Jesus says that she's just asleep because sleep was a euphemism for death in, in the first century. It wasn't that he was going, no, she's just taking a nap. No, he was saying she's dead, but he's referencing something else. So like when we say that someone has passed away, that's a euphemism that we're kind of using. We're not, we don't want to say the word died, right? So we say pass away. In this culture, we, they would say people have fallen asleep and that's what they meant by death. So what is Jesus talking about here? Well, he's drawing from the parable that we read a couple weeks ago. A couple weeks ago, um, there was a story that Jesus told about a seed and how the seed is planted and then it grows. But then he said in the same way, the farmer sleeps and then the farmer wakes up. So he's talking about resurrection. So he's talking about how the seed is planted and then it rises, it grows. The farmer goes to sleep as he's planted the seed and then he rises, he comes awake. And so he's saying here, something is coming. Resurrection is coming. The seed is about to grow. The farmer is about to wake up. So he's using this word, these words intentionally. He's saying to them, just like the seed has been planted only to rise again, that's what's going to happen to this little girl. There's this theme in Mark's gospel and actually throughout the Bible about planting and growing, sleeping and waking up, dying and rising again. It's all throughout the scriptures. In fact, that's our story as the people of God. It's not a keep calm and carry on story. <laughs> it's a story of giving up life and getting new life, dying and rising, giving of ourselves and receiving something that we never would have expected sleeping, uh, waking, planting, blooming. That's our story. It's about trust when we don't have the trust and seeing the new thing that God has for us. There's this beautiful um, Japanese art form called kintsugi. 
and uh, it means golden repair. I want to show just a few of these images here. Um, it's this traditional practice of using precious metals, the liquid form of precious metals, usually gold or silver, to take broken pottery, so pottery that's been broken, that's fallen on the ground, and piecing it back together. And this, this art form does a couple things. It, it brings the item to a place of restoration. So it puts all of the pieces back together. But the other thing it does that's so different is it emphasizes the breaks. The breaks shine through with gold or silver. So this is not a piece of pottery that's trying to fake you out and make you think it's never been broken. This is a piece of pottery that says, I have been broken. <laughs> and look at this, right? Well, I don't know what the pottery says, but it, that's, what, that's what I imagine it says. The product is beautiful. So the irregular patterns of the break create a beautiful work of art. The bowl of pottery is upfront about its brokenness. It exhibits the places where it broke apart. And the reason why I love this story in Mark's gospel is because both Jairus and the woman are in this place where they openly admit their need for God's intervention. And they go to extremes to do that. So Jairus says, I am broken. <laughs> he gets down. Jesus, I need you. The woman says, I'm going to break all the laws and reach out for you. It's in their rejoicing in their brokenness, their rejoicingness in what has fallen apart that they find something that they never would have expected. Our hope as the people of God is not in pretending like everything's okay, but in admitting and recognizing our need for his grace. God makes beautiful things out of broken things. Resurrection happens only after death. New life comes as we lay down the old life. And it says when he said this, when he told the crowd, she's just sleeping, that they laughed at him. It says that. It says they laughed at him. Why? Well, laughter is a defense mechanism. When we're in the midst of grief, you know, we crack jokes. We say things when we're uncomfortable. We tell jokes when we don't know what else to do. They laughed when Jesus said, there's more to this little girl's story than just her death. Sometimes when Christians say there's more to the story than what we can see, the world laughs. Sometimes we laugh at ourselves, right? We go, how can I believe this, right? But much of the Christian life is about trusting there's more going on in the story than what we can see, even when everything looks dark. One of them, um, one of these interesting moments is in Jesus's statement, Talitha kum, or he says, time to get up, little girl. That's what that means. It's this word of command that, that she obeyed. She got up, she walked around the room, she was healed. Uh, she was risen. Mark, uh, Mark also includes this detail. It says that he, he told them to get her something to eat. Now that, we, scholars don't think that has any profound meaning to it. <laughs> There's nothing there. It's just that Mark is like showing us this was a real story that actually happened. This wasn't just a legend or a parable. And so even the little details like somebody get her some food <laughs> is included in the story. Um, but an odd thing about this passage and about these places in Mark's gospel, Mark switches languages on us. So the gospel's written in Greek and Mark is actually not the best at Greek in all of our uh, uh, writers in the New Testament, but the gospel's written in Greek, but he keeps a few phrases in Aramaic, okay, a different language. 
At this time, Greek was the language that was for writing and for commerce and for formal occasion. So Jesus and all of his disciples probably spoke Greek. We know that. But when speaking to one another, they probably spoke Aramaic, probably spoke this kind of common language. So what he does here is so interesting. He includes these two words in their common kind of relational language, which is kind of strange. Why just these two words? Well, there's another place where he does this in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus says, Abba, that's Aramaic, right? So he switches from Greek to Aramaic. There's these moments that these very, usually very powerful moments when the language shifts. And one of the reasons why we think this is true is each of the gospel writers um, that weren't there, that weren't with Jesus. So we don't think Mark was actually there with Jesus. Luke was not actually there with Jesus, but they interviewed other people. So Luke, for example, a lot of people think Mary might have been his primary source, that Luke has gotten a lot of stuff from Mary. Mark, we think that one of his sources might be Peter, that Peter is telling Mark these stories exactly how they're happening. And what I'm picturing here is Peter is sitting around campfires with people telling the Talitha Kum story. And every time he gets to that moment, and he says, and Jesus walked in the house, and he said to the little girl, and then every kind of thing hushes, right? Talitha kum. Like this was Jesus. I have to say this in Jesus's words. I have to say it exactly how it happened because this is so powerful. It struck them in such a significant way that whenever they told the story afterwards, even to non-Jewish audiences, they had to keep the words exactly as they are. At that moment, God broke into the ordinary into our common language. And Jesus's command was the command of creation, the command of new creation, the command of God remaking, restoring, calling out life where there was death. One of the reasons why people doubt miracles is because they seem unfair. If God can raise this girl, if he can heal the woman with the issue of blood, why didn't he do that for her? my friend or my family member or me. That seems unfair. If, if there's miracles sometimes, why aren't there miracles all the time? It doesn't make any sense to us. And then we think about big picture things. If God can do this, what about the Holocaust, right? Like, why, why did that happen? Like, couldn't that healing have happened in this moment? And I think a lot of times Christians, we tend to think about miracles as being ends in and of themselves. So God heals us so we don't have to hurt or that we can be better. And of course, that's partially true. But there's something else going on with miracles. Miracles exist then and now as signposts of something else. They point us to something else. The woman with the issue of blood, even as she went along her way and she was healed and she was restored to community, she eventually would die again, right? She probably would even get sick again. Jesus wasn't a one-man medical center, right? Going from place to place and just healing everybody like an ambulance would, right? The point of his life was not just to heal people. He brought God's healing power, but it was healing power on a deeper level. Each of these miracles were signposts of what was about to happen to all of creation through him. Signposts are important. Signposts matter, but they're not the ultimate destination. Jesus is moving us somewhere and Mark is pointing us there. Jesus is moving us toward the fact that he will confront death itself, the thing that threatens this beautiful creation. 
Just as Jesus confronted death and impurity with the woman of the issue of blood and the little girl, bringing them not only to new life, but restored connection with the community, Jesus is now about to face evil and death itself at its core. And only through that death is there resurrection. So this story tells us something about fear and faith. As we close here, both uh, Jairus and the woman with the issue of blood laid down their lives, their reputation, and they trusted in something else. They took the risk at the end of their rope to trust Jesus. Jairus literally laid himself down, his position, his pride. He opened himself up and showed his brokenness before Jesus. The woman stretched out her hand in a crowd that pressed her on all sides just to touch Jesus. I wonder if there are some of us today that um, feel overwhelmed. I got an email this week from a friend who, he is particularly overwhelmed with the state of our country right now. And um, he was just asking for advice because he's just feeling overwhelmed and oppressed and feeling like um, doesn't know where to turn and hopeless, all of these kind of things. Um, and it's affected his faith. Said he's struggling with how to even love people now. He's afraid. I think many of us may have points in our life um, where we feel that way. We go, I don't know what to do. Some of you are here and you're struggling with doubt right now. Doubt in the goodness of God, that that chorus that we sang over and over again, that he's good. Trying to figure out how do I piece together my faith? The woman didn't even have enough faith to speak out loud to Jesus and express her needs, but she did have enough faith to reach out and grab him. I wonder if you're at a place where you feel lost today. Um, I wanna encourage you to express that, <laughs> to express that to God. Express your doubts and your brokenness. Be honest, reach out to him. I think we have this myth that we either have to have faith all wrapped up and nice and put together and be at this great mature place in our journey or not have faith at all. But there's so many places in the scripture where faith is, God, help me, I'm desperate. I know there's something in you, but I'm, all I can do is reach right now. I can't even speak. But this story is also not about us. It's not just, it's easy when we read these stories to kind of individualize it. And I think that is true on some level, but it causes us to ask the question, who are the people who are the most desperate in our world today? How does this change our view of them? Not just putting ourselves in that position, but what do we do if we put others in that place? So like when you have a friend who's down on his luck, you know, sometimes we ordinarily might go, man, if that guy would have made better decisions, then, you know, he'd be in a better place right now. We get kind of judgmental. But what would it mean to actually put ourselves in that position? Last week, I talked to you about the posture that we've taken with our neighbors who are transient and down on their luck. Um, for those of you that weren't here, I said that kind of needing to make a choice because we are now in a neighborhood where we're gonna have a lot of people who are homeless, who are down on their luck, who are just walking through our neighborhood. We're positioned right between the rescue mission and the bus station here. And there's already a lot of people have come in and asked for money every week after week after week and kind of caused us to go, what, what do we do? How do we do this? And I talked to you a little bit about how we as a church are trying to partner with the Nashville Rescue Mission, with the Episcopal Church that's been here for generations right here and figure out what are some resources and some ways we can tangibly help. And one of the things we've chosen to do is we've just kind of encouraged you not to actually give money at this point. 
because we just don't, as a church, have the resources to help everybody. Um, and so we're encouraging people to be pointed to the rescue mission. And then this week, I'm gonna be challenging you um, with a tangible way that we can help through what we're calling traveler bags. And these are these bags that are gonna have a bus pass, a McDonald's gift certificate in them, a water bottle, some hygiene products, some things that we can do that we can tangibly bless and, and serve our community here. Um, and this has been a challenge, and this has been so hard because I've been trying to think, Lord, help us, because these are the people who are the most vulnerable in our society, right? So how do we serve them in a way that is tangible, in a way that is real, in a way that we can be the most effective? I also am gonna challenge us. We've been invited by the Episcopal Church here to join them um, really whenever we can on whatever rotation cycle we can for a Eucharist service that they do at two o'clock on the lawn out here uh, on Sunday afternoons and, uh, um, and to join with them. And then they serve a meal to, to the community. And it's just a really tangible way that we can participate. We can provide the meal whenever we want to. He's invited me to do the preaching sometime and to help uh, with that. But it's a way that we can tangibly partner with what's already happening here. And I know these are small things, but I do believe that small things matter. That in many ways, we're, our faith is about the everyday step, the turning the other cheek, the walking the second mile, the loving our neighbor in every practical little way that we choose to do that. Every act that restores dignity and compassion can be a signpost of the kingdom of God. It's not a coincidence that Jesus spent so much of his ministry among the most vulnerable people. Jairus was not poor, but he was desperate. The woman with the issue of blood is an example of someone who's been cut off and marginalized from society. How might God be leading you today? To the black sheep of your family, to the desperate, to the hurting, to those who our society has called unclean. Finally, I, I wanna challenge you with something. Um, where, where's the place in your life that you have felt like always holds you back? That brokenness, that character flaw, that personality quirk, that sin, that shameful thing, that place where you feel out of control in your life, that family thing that's like eating at you. What if we took the risk today to actually lay that out before God? In prayer today and with a safe person in our community, what if over these next few weeks, we began to say, Lord, I, this is something I've hidden and I've run away from. And Lord, let this be the gold and the silver that's poured through the cracks. May your love and your grace be that thing that shines forth. May we rejoice in our weaknesses. I wanna suggest that God takes our cracked state and he fills it with gold not hiding the imperfections, but making something completely unexpected. The seed is planted in order to bloom. The morning wailers are told that there's more to the story. The one who is asleep is told to get up and walk. The one who has been marginalized from community is restored. Our resurrection hope is that God is at work and he makes all things new. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that... Um, you are the God who has gone out to the margins, to those who have been left out, those who have been rejected, those who are broken, that you are the one who rejected all of the purity laws and rituals and went out and rescued us. Lord, all of us recognize our own state of un unclean, the places that we have uh, missed the mark, 
places where we're broken and we feel shameful. And we're thankful, Lord, that you've restored us and are restoring us and healing us, Lord. Help us to be your people who are signposts of your redemption, of your grace in our broken world. Lord, will you lead each of us to the most vulnerable in our world and in our society, that we might be your hands and your feet to point to hope and healing that's found in you. We trust you and we praise you in your great name. Amen. Amen.